This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Michal Raz. Michal is the author of What's Wrong with the Poor? Psychiatry, Race, and the War on Poverty, a choice outstanding academic title that was published by University of North Carolina Press and is recently out in a paperback edition. Uh, Michal, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Uh, so before we are, turn our attention to the book itself, I wonder if you might talk just a little bit about uh, your own educational and professional background, perhaps, and uh, what it is that led you to this particular book. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm a physician. I uh, provide primary care to adults and have a PhD in history. So I like to you know, describe myself as a clinician historian. I do both. Uh, and I'm particularly interested as a physician who takes care of disadvantaged populations to see um, how, how well-intentioned doctors think about their patients and what works and what doesn't. And um, when we try to be helpful, when do we actually succeed and what are the risks and the unintended consequences of benevolence? And I like to think about that from a historical perspective, and that led me to this project asking how did physicians and policymakers join forces to try and answer the question, what's wrong with the poor, or what is it that poor people lack, and what were their answers they came up with, which surprisingly wasn't, they don't have money. Right. And so why don't we, we then, so, so, so your answer is in some ways that, that an awful lot of thinking, uh, at least if we look at the key great society programs of the 1960s and Head Start in particular, is rooted in deprivation theory. Um, so I wonder if you could explain for folks what deprivation theory is, where it comes from, and why it is that we should care about it. Absolutely. Um, so Deprivation theory is a, an approach that focuses on what is it that certain populations don't have a deficit, what is it they lack, and that the interventions to fix it are designed to provide what it is that we think they're lacking. It seems a very straightforward approach. They don't have something, well, give it as whatever they're lacking. And this has been around since the early 20th century, and I think it has its roots in a number of different approaches, specifically in vitamins. So nutritional deficiency in vitamins, super common way to think about things in the early 20th century. Physicians were really enamored by this very easy approach. You have um, scurvy, all right, we'll give you a vitamin, it'll go away. Um, so this was the intellectual uh, predecessor to the deprivation approach in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it, it went through many different um, changes. So it started with the nutritional deficiency, the vitamin approach, and then uh, John Balby in England developed this idea of maternal deprivation, that mother love is as necessary as vitamins for normal childhood development. And that went and developed across both sides of the Atlantic, and America became pretty popularized by uh, Mary Ainsworth. So we're looking at vitamins, then we're looking at maternal love, and then in the 1950s and 60s, we started with sensory deprivation experiments. What happens when we raise mice in complete darkness? What happens to the monkeys who are held in a cage with no stimulation? What happens to our grad students? We put you know, blinders and earmuffs on them. And this really uh, went well with Cold War science um, experiments and even uh, approaches to torture and sensory deprivation um, at the time. So I think this is all this kind of idea. It's like a very sim- simple approach. Uh, let's take one thing away, see what happens, and give it back and see if it fixes it. So I, I think that's the roots of this deprivation approach. Uh, and it was particularly compelling when we talk about um, low-income low or disadvantaged populations to identify what it is that they're lacking and then how we can um, fix it, how we can provide it. And sometimes it's completely um, explicit. We talked about the intellectual vitamins that poor children were lacking in the 1960s or avitaminosis, um, intellectual avitaminosis, in a very medicalized way to talk about what it is that poor children don't have in their homes. And there, there are and, and sort of at least two big things that, that seem interesting about this in the way in which you, you talk about this. The, the first is, I mean, I guess sort of this question of how does this wind up being incorporated into thinking about policies directed at poor and low-income populations? And along with that, um, how does that happen given that you argue that there is no empirical foundation to actually support this as having useful meaning, correct? Well, I think there there was empirical evidence for nutritional deprivation. Right, right, right. Sure. Vitamins do, in fact, evidence help for sensory deprivation. But then, as this concept traveled from one field to the other, when it was um, used to talk about poor families. We talked about cultural deprivation, and we should, you know, co- compensate for this cultural deprivation. And there's absolutely no evidence that this exists. There's no reason to think. Uh, that poor families or a minority, particularly African-American families, suffer from cultural deprivation. A culture is not something that you either have or have not, and then it can just provide it in a compensatory amount. Um, but the idea was so compelling, and the evidence was from other fields. So every time you wanted to make a case for why cultural deprivation existed, you say, oh, but those mice, oh, there's, you know, there's monkeys in the cages. And what about those vitamins? So it sounded like there was a lot of evidence, but none of them actually directly related to the thing at hand. Um, but it did sound like a catchy idea. It seemed to make a lot of sense. It was something that was easy for physicians to promote because it was something that they were familiar from their concepts of you know, vitamin deficiencies and nutritional deficiencies. Uh, and it made sense to the policymakers and the public opinion mostly because it was compelling and, and simple. Give them what we think they don't have. Right. Uh, but always this thing that you know they don't have, it, wasn't, it was never you know, money or jobs or respect. It was always, you know, they lack motivation, they lack culture, many judgmental stereotypes of what poor families lack, rather than uh, ideas rooted in socioeconomic theory. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, one of the things that's that's interesting that you talk about in some length is that we can we can see the way in which that that those class and racial biases play out when we look at the the, the various ways in which this kind of thinking was applied to daycare programs or about. Uh, uh, caring for children as as their parents went off to work. Can you talk a little bit about how that thinking differed when they were talking about middle income families versus low income African American families? Absolutely, and I think I mean this is an interesting case, and the and, and this also answers the question: Why doesn't America have universal daycare? Yeah. So when we think about daycare, we think about it differently for different children. So for poor families at need, daycare is great because you take them from their poor homes and for their incompetent parents. And this is all I'm saying: what people thought at the time, obviously not what I think. Um, you're taking them from a bad environment, and they're placing them in a place where they can get enrichment and compensatory education. And at the time, people were even saying, "You're giving them the, the, you know, the wonderful mom they never had, even though they, you know, they had great moms at home." But the point is, you took them away from their homes and put them in something that was a surrogate for a middle-class family. Uh, but when you did that to a middle-class child or, a, or a, um, you know, uh, upper-class child, then you were taking them away from their parent, who was supposed, from their mother, who was supposed to be the source of all education and stimulation, and it was seen as as risky and could cause maternal deprivation when you take the child away from the mom. Uh, and at some point, people were even talking, you know, this would take apart American families. This could cause Sovietization of America. If everyone had daycare, this would be a terrible thing. It would have, a, as Nixon said, family-weakening implications. So the bottom line is daycare is a, a treatment, a therapy for poor families, for low-income families of color who we think that their homes are so poor that taking them outside of the home is a good thing. But when we look at a white family or a middle-class middle, middle class family, taking a child out of the home to put them in daycare, that's, that's risky, so you can cause deprivation. So the, interestingly, the word deprivation was used for the same thing in different, in different ways. For poor kids, daycare fixes deprivation. For middle-class or higher-income families, it causes deprivation. Obviously, it's the same daycare, uh, but the, at the core was... Um, what we think about these uh, families and about these children's home lives and what their moms can provide their children. Yeah. And, and presumably um, the awareness with which you just described the different ways in which this idea gets applied to different races and classes. Um, there's, there's not much evidence that there was anybody sort of who was aware that this was going on uh, in the sixties when it started to be applied to social programs. Is that right? I'm sorry, would you clarify? Was, was, was anybody, the way in which you sort of described um, this, it, you know, at some level, uh, reductionist, ridiculous, different ways of, of using this idea as we apply it either to low-income families or middle-income families, was there anybody in the 60s who was sort of keyed into that and pointing out that, that this doesn't make a whole lot of sense and that we're, we're applying it in discriminatory ways? Um. Not really. So the Democrats who were pushing the um, universal child care bill, which passed in 1971, they did believe that universal daycare was a universal good, uh, but for many reasons, including that it would provide you know, child care, a custodial solution for a real problem, who will take care of children while parents work. Uh, but nobody said, hey, if it's good for the poor, why is it good for the rich? Um, but there were... Uh, Low-income moms, particularly mothers of color in New York City, who did not 
appreciate being called, you know, de- deprived or deficient. And some uh, some did voice some concern about that, but it was really um, we don't really have good evidence of, of any kind of uh, institutionalized uh, criticism about this approach. It was it was pretty well established, and I mean, it, it also made sense to a lot of people, and it also prof- provided intellectual scaffolding to do some good in the world. So um, Diane Ravitch, who is an educational mm-hmm. historian, says compensatory education is a misnomer. They were giving they were giving children, you know, good education. So why argue? Right. So I mean that that's kind of you know people weren't saying this is bad because it, it had a good outcome. You were giving uh, children educational opportunities they they lacked. But I I mean in my in the book I ask well at what cost what is at risk when we in order to provide uh, good ed- interventions to for low income families what we have to pathologize them and you know essentially you know say their life is so terrible we have to do this intervention rather than saying early childhood education is a universal good it's a right our children will benefit from it let's give it to everyone yeah I mean one of one of the things that I that I thought particularly interesting and in some ways discouraging. Uh, in your discussion of sort of the programs that served as the foundation for Head Start, you talk a little bit about mobilization for youth, which is, mm-hmm. you know, in the histories of, of Head Start and the Great Society is often identified as the roots of community action programs and one of the more radical uh, ways of interacting with, with poor and low-income communities in New York City. But you argue that they, too, were building their thinking around variants on a deprivation theory. Yes, I was surprised. I mean, it is exactly as you say, a radical you know, grassroots organization, and they fought against racism and stigmatization of uh, low-income and minority communities, and they too used the same the same language. Um, and I think that's, I mean, that was a currency at the time. People were fighting for funding, and they were fighting for fighting for social approval. Uh, and if everyone was talking in this language, you know, it was hard to, to stand back and say this this makes no sense. This this is discriminatory or this is stigmatizing. I have also in, uh, letters from from uh, you know black uh, citizens. You know, the deprivation in my community is how can we fight this? So it was also a reason to ask for funds. And to mobilize, so rather than saying, you know, my community is great, uh, where can I get more funding for resilience or for support? My community is deprived. Um, you know, this this is a reason that you need to help us develop our schools or give us more funding. So th- there's many ways to use this approach. Um, I think we can't. It's easy for us to say, "Oh, now, now we know that this was a. Now we think that this is a discriminatory or uh, a bad approach to use because it stigmatized poor people." But at the time, it just you want to you want to play the game. You have to talk the language. Yeah. Um, so some of that may very well have been strategic understanding that look, if we want to yeah. get some funding, we got to we got to. Tap, I mean, the same is arguably true today, right? There are ways in which, you know, big foundations talk about social problems. And if you want them to fund your program, you need to use that language and convince them that you're doing work that is consonant with their understandings of where problems come from. So, Absolutely. This is, I mean, that, that was a party line. And if you wanted to participate in the funding that was available at the time, this was the way to to couch it. These are the terms people used. But also, the way to get money for disadvantaged populations is not to say, um, you know, the disadvantaged populations is is deserving, we should give money because it's a question of justice, which would be perhaps my preferred approach, but to say, oh, this disadvantaged population is so, everything is so terrible. 
you know, the, the inner cities are burning, American carnage. This is a time when we talk about how bad things are in order to be able to give money for it. Um, so often, you know, pathologizing certain, uh, um, certain members of society is the only way to turn attention to, to their plight and to bring money to fund them rather than focusing on questions of justice. So in, in this way, you wind up sort of seeing the same kind of thinking approach in things like the Kerner Commission report, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, but interestingly, I know the Kerner Commission and the report was not well received. Um, and I think probation theory can only take you so far. When you, take, when you talk about small children and you say they're deprived, we should use this as a rallying cry to give them daycare. That's great. But when the Kerner Commission said oh, our inner cities are, um, are deprived or falling apart, the black community is falling behind, it's, all of this, again, in the terms of deprivation, that wasn't enough. You used deprivation, but you still couldn't. Um, you really couldn't rally support for millions of dollars of influx of money to help support uh, feeling communities. And some of that, you know, is kids are cute. Uh, inner cities, not so much. And some of it was a scale, how much money was at stake. And some of it was just saying, you know, sign up the Times uh, by the uh, late, by the early 1970s, and we have uh, white backlash. And what was accepted in the 1960s was no longer as compelling. Yeah. And what, I'm, I, I can't in my head now get the order of Kerner Commission versus Moynihan Report, the, the, the sequence of those. But uh, uh, Moynihan Report came first, yes? Right, right, 1965. 65. And the Kerner Commission uh, was the, early, the late 1960s after the 1968 riot. So, I mean, do you think that part of what, what, what started to create at least a little bit of pushback into that, that sort of deprivation thinking was that the context changed after the Moynihan Report because it, it was at least read by an awful lot of communities as, as explicitly racist? Um. No, I, I actually don't think that the uh, Moynihan Report changed the discourse on deprivation. Mm. I think it took more than that and more time. I think people were very enamored with the deprivation approach until the um, until the early 1970s. And I think uh, the, the Moynihan Report uh, didn't really change that much. I think uh, it took... It took a while. It took, first of all, the end of the Johnson administration and, uh, and rise of Nixon to power. Um, and also... Um, people. It, People were losing faith in the uh, great society interventions, but I wouldn't pinpoint Ed Moynihan as a as a point of weakness in the deprivation. I think the opposite. It kind of enshrined this idea that even when you have a family with a strong mother, a matriarchal family, as they call them, even that mom could cause maternal deprivation because she wasn't the right kind of mother. She wasn't doing the middle class kind of mothering that we, which was a normative. Uh, a white standard, and accordingly, these families were maternally deprived. Yeah. Although, you know, to be fair to poor dead Pat Moynihan, um, while I think there was a sort of an awful lot of, of ugly rhetoric in the report, he did ultimately conclude the largest problem facing those communities was unemployment, not cultural failures. Um, yeah, although arguably yeah, I didn't, think, I mean, didn't frame that too well. And I think it's not just Moynihan. I think a lot of well-intentioned liberals at the time, I mean, they, they were committed to fighting racism and helping marginalized society, uh, marginalized um, members of the society. Uh, and now it's easy for me to say, oh, but what they were doing, you know, you can reveal their stereotypes and their presuppositions about uh, low-income families. But at the time, they were really motivated by, you know, trying to help poor people. Not poor families, and they thought this was, you know, this was a, a good approach. My story is a story about, you know, racists or um, people who 
came out to to criticize black families. The story about the story is about well-intentioned liberal physicians right. and and practitioners and researchers who joined forces with well-intentioned liberal anti-racist policymakers who said, "How can we really, you know, help poor people?" And the answer was like, "Well, let's figure out what's wrong with them and then see how we." How do we fix them? And I mean, the problem wasn't with um, with their intentions. The problem was with the question they were asking, which was, "What's wrong with them?" Right. And not, you know, "What's wrong with society that's creating these uh, huge, uh, uh, huge socioeconomic disparities and racial inequities?" Yeah. And you know, arguably, sort of before a period in which, um, at least in social work, right, we talk about evidence based practice and and thinking about you know communities from a strengths perspective i mean this was before that was uh widely in people's consciousness about sort of that that uh understanding and respect for those communities and and looking for uh good evidence and research to support what feel like intuitive assumptions so arguably easier than to say yeah this makes total sense right yeah yes um, so you you also talk a little bit about the ways in which this plays out in uh, what became mild mental retardation diagnoses, uh, and then the sort of the school segregation that goes along with it. Can you just talk a little bit about the ways in which this plays out there as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, so the 1960s saw this rise of a new category, the mild mental retardation. And what really enabled this to talk about people who had... Um, intellectual abilities or perceived intellectual abilities at the lower range of the spectrum as being retarded was this idea of cultural deprivation. Because once we thought that cultural deprivation does uh, hinders intellectual growth, and people who are culturally deprived, they must be mildly mentally retarded. And of course, this was predominantly group, uh, predominantly group, uh, group of low-income black children. And this happened to coincide, or not by chance, with desegregation. So we would have schools in which a whole bunch of black children who had been in separate schools suddenly were mainstreamed into uh, desegregated schools. And um, they would see that their scholastic abilities, or at least how their perceived scholastic abilities, were different. And they would start tricking them or putting them in different classes according to their perceived abilities. And lo and behold, we had classes of completely black of children described as mildly mentally retarded uh, who that were separated from the mainstream class. Um, now, some of this may have been in well intentioned. These children came from uh, feeling uh, under resourced, under budgeted schools that were that were segregated, and now they were mainstreamed together with uh, white children, and they didn't have the same academic background, and they put them in uh, lower tracks in order to um, help them, you know, master the material and so on. But the result was that you had segregated classes in desegregated schools. Uh, and uh, now that was once the reason that that there was a, uh, a group of black families who and they they, uh, they fought this in the courts, which brought an end to the tracking system, uh, first in D.C. and then later throughout the country. Mm-hmm. But uh, saying that a whole group of black kids retarded, I mean that sounds absurd today. Yes and no, because yeah, of course uh, black children are also overrepresented in uh, special education classes to this day throughout America, but. Saying that there are all, all these children would be retarded would be inconceivable except for the theory we had of cultural deprivation. So when we say that they were all culturally deprived, and that's that's why they suffered from mild intellectual disability, mild mental retardation, that enabled us to put them apart 
and offer them compensatory interventions. And I'm not saying this would have racist intent necessarily. I'm sure teachers wanted to teach children at their ability, and it was easiest, it was better for them to teach when the classes were more homogenous. So there were other reasons, many things at play. But the end result was, as I said, uh, segregation inside desegregated schools. And, so that, and that has, has a long-lasting effect to this day on how we how we deal with um, diagnoses of intellectual disability within the public school system, uh, which seems to be, again, an object of uh, quite a lot of debate in these past few months. Uh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry. It's not enough to say, you know, poverty is bad for kids. To say that it's bad for kids, you have to say it has a, a result. It has a medical result. Poverty is bad for kids causes cultural deprivation, which causes retardation. Retardation, that's, you know, that's terrible. Well, we're going to have all this epidemic of retarded kids, or, or today we would say intellectually disabled children. So it was a reason to fight poverty, but it was also a way that ended up stigmatizing huge groups of uh, low-income black kids. You're listening to the New Books Network. We're talking with Mikhail Raz. She's the author of What's Wrong with the Poor? Psychiatry, Race, and the War on Poverty uh, from University of North Carolina Press. Um, so I wonder if we could pick up there. And it's it's one of the things that I think is, is you talked a little bit about the um, both the long-lasting effects of this tracking in school um, and sort of uh, made reference to the fact that that as a formal matter, we don't do that kind of tracking in quite that way, but we still do we still do engage in in a whole lot of segregation in the public schools, and a lot of that winds up being uh, having clearly identifiable racial effects done under the guise of tracking according to ability. Do you do you think that that's fundamentally different, or is that simply the same kind of thinking that you're observing in the 60s being carried out in a different kind of way? I think at the core, it's the same thing, that you have to identify, identify pathology in order to be able to be eligible for services. Mm-hmm. And that's in, in American society, that's a unifying theme because we really have no safety network. We don't really have a robust welfare system to help poor people because they're poor. So in order to, to you know, receive uh, benefits, you have to be eligible for SSI or you have to, if, or if you're a veteran, you have to have a service connected condition. Or if you're a child and you're poor, you have to be identified as having uh, special needs or, or different kinds of disabilities. So that's discourses. And instead of talking about poverty, we're talking about the perceived sequelae, the, um, the results of poverty in terms of uh, disability. And then that's the way to be eligible for services. So in many ways, identifying uh, children disadvantaged children as having some kind of intellectual deficiency or a learning disability is a way to give them services they need. Uh, and uh, in different states, t- to this day, there's discussions, are we over-identifying? Are we under-identifying? What's the risk of identifying children as having a disability? Because on the one hand, it gives them the ability to, it, it provides a way to give services that are, are useful and beneficial. But on the other hand, it's a way to, to stigmatize and segregate uh, and separate and uh, and label. So, I mean, and I think particularly as a physician, we I see this a lot in clinic, that in order to have my patient be eligible for services they need, I have to have a diagnosis. Yeah. And so that's really... Uh, very common in America. I was going to say, that's one of the sort of things that sort of comes up all the, the time is that sort of the relationship between insurance billing practices and the DSM. 
right, is that that in order to get reimbursed for providing care for certain categories of patients, you have got to have a diagnosis. You have got to have a code that you are putting in on that form. So in some ways, the very ways in which we structure our social welfare programs requires that we treat people as problems, that we affix a pathology to them so that we can be reimbursed for providing care to them. Absolutely. And I think it's not just about reimbursement. I mean, obviously, physicians care a great deal about reimbursement. Um, but even places where, you know, physicians are salaried, for instance, at the VA, where this is not an incentive necessarily, uh, it is a way for, for us to get um, benefits for our patients. And I'd like to think, you know, a lot of us physicians care deeply about our patients and yeah. uh, obtaining you know, what they need. Uh, and I know for myself as a primary care provider working at, within the VA system, uh, if you if you if you want your patient to get a certain benefit, you have to make sure that they have a pathology that makes them eligible to get that benefit. Yeah. And the answer is never you know justice. There's no way to get reimbursed by furthering justice. Um, so I want to, if we can, uh, as we as we work our way toward the end of our time here, I wonder if we could circle back to. To this notion of maternal deprivation in and particularly among uh, children in in low income communities and um, you know I mean when I think of you know my friends with kids and and you know sort of talking about nieces and nephews and that sort of thing we hear all sorts of talk about well you know it's 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 the the, the verbal acuity in the household is important enormously important to childhood development and you know the more words spoken in a home in early years of life uh, looks like creates. Uh, greater opportunities for learning in the early years, which then make learning in the later years possible. Uh, we know about the consequences of poor nutrition, especially in very young children, and what the longer-term consequences uh, are of that. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, I'm sort of thinking of the people out there who are going to say, well, wait a minute, there really is sometimes something missing in low-income households that is, in fact, a consequence of a lack and a failure of parenting. However, we identify the root of that failure, right? Maybe it's because they don't have enough money rather than that they're bad people. But is there something to that kind of maternal deprivation stuff, or is there not even evidence for the things that I've just articulated? I think that's a very complex question. Um, and the research on it is is deeply flawed. So when we talk about parenting and, and verbal development and so on, people like to um, cite the 30 million word gap, mm -hmm. which uh, says that by the age of four, children from poor families will have heard you know, 30 million words less than their uh, middle class and upper income fa uh, counterparts. And that was based on a, you know, a deeply flawed study that looked at 42 families in total, of which only six were low-income families. Oh, wow. um, so I don't think we really have um, compelling data that poor parents uh, speak less to their children. But it would be that they do. Um, I think it's also useful to ask why uh, and what said. So, I mean, maybe the reason that there is less verbal stimulation in poor families is because the mom works shifts and she's not at home in the afternoon because, you know, in the fast food um, industry, then people work all kinds of shifts and they only know that same week what their work schedule is going to look like. Um, I think there's a lot of judgment that's uh, that's um, uh, is um, that's looking at uh, low-income families. So um, 
I am. I have two children, uh, and I work full time as a physician and a researcher. And no one asks me, you know, when you're home, and why you know, are your children getting the stimulation they need? And you know, you come home late. Who's who's talking to your children? Because the assumption is that. Um, as an educated white lady, I am stimulating my, my kids and I'm doing just fine. Whereas um, low-income families are always facing the stigma that they are failing in, in talking to their parents and to their kids and they're failing in stimulating their kids and they should be doing all these things that they assume they, they really aren't. So I think a lot of it is stratified by race and class uh, and expectations of, of what good parenting equals. So when you work all day and you're at a home because you're working shifts in, in fast food or in other kind of service industries, then that's judged differently than when you're working shifts because you're a physician or you have a different kind of, you know, you're a, you have a highly educated job that requires you to be out of the home. Um, but I also think that you know children from low-income uh, families do face a host of different disadvantages, including nutritional deficiencies and housing insecurities. Um, uh, they they don't have many of the advantages that middle-class families have, including you know private tutoring and lessons and music classes and so on. But I think that since the 60s, there's been this singular focus on language and the amount of words that are spoken and the verbal stimulation. And I think that might be misguided when the focus should be on interaction. I mean, clearly, we should be talking to our children and, and stimulating them. But there are different, many different ways to do that that don't all have to be language-based. Um, so we can sing to your child, uh, dance with your child, play music, uh, do physical activities. And I don't think there's any reason to think that that is not as useful as talking. I think engagement is uh, is the key here. Um, you're listening to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And we are uh, finishing up our conversation with Michal Raz, who is the author of What's Wrong with the Poor, Psychiatry, Race, and the War on Poverty. Um, so can you talk, uh, A, first, Michal, is there anything um, that you feel that, that, that we've, we've, we've left out of, of the book or anything that you would like to add before I ask you what it is that you're thinking about and working on next? No, I think just the basic point I want to make is um, I think there are many different ways to, inter- to have poverty interventions that are designed to strengthen low-income families. I'm certainly not saying everything is dandy in low-income families, leave them alone. Uh, I think there's a way to help struggling families and help low-income families uh, without pathologizing them. Or when we do pathologize them for you know, strategic reasons or in order to uh, obtain uh, benefits, we should be very uh, aware of why this is happening and have it part of the conversation and make sure we're not just um, reflexively trying to point out what's wrong with poor people. Yeah. Um, so what, what are you working on now or what are the, the kinds of, of questions that, that, that you're exploring currently? So I'm writing now a new book on um, child abuse policy, hmm. uh, and it's an intersection with race and class. Uh, and I think my new project shows that uh, while uh, we we have found that um, that social inequities and social stressors and economic stressors have an important uh, role in creating situations that lead to child abuse. There was since the 1970s, there's been a push to show it as a race, colorblind, class-free, equal opportunity social ill. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the face of child abuse since the 1970s has been a white middle-class mother. But we know that that's actually not the person who's who 
who um, poses a high risk to children. The highest risk to children are usually uh, in low-income families, a person who is not a blood family relative. Um, but getting the demographics wrong is has a long-lasting impact on how we think about child abuse to this day. So I am looking at why we are telling the story of child abuse as a equal opportunity social ill, why we're focusing on white moms uh, and what's at stake at that. And I argue that by turning it into a white problem, we set the stage for a host of interventions that actually disproportionately impact low-income uh, minority families. So first we make a problem white, and then it impacts uh, low-income black families. Fascinating. Um, I hope you will come back and talk to us about it when that book is finished. Oh, thank you. I'd love to. Uh, so uh, we've been speaking with Mikhail Raz about what's wrong with the poor, psychiatry, race, and the war on poverty. And I encourage everybody to take a look. It's it's filled with all sorts of fascinating stuff. But I think that, uh, at least from my perspective, one of uh, its greatest uses is offering uh, some useful new perspective on origins of a handful of Great Society era programs. And it's always fun uh, in both the Great Society period and the New Deal period to to learn new things just when we think we can't possibly have new things to, to pull out of that. It's always a treat uh, to find stuff there. So I encourage everyone uh, to check it out. Michal, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for your questions.